Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hey everyone, it's great to be back on Behind the Knife with the Minimally Invasive Surgery team from the University of Washington for our second Clinical Challenge episode. I'm Mike Wykamp, here again with Drs. Nicole White, Andrew Wright, and Nick Citrullo, and we have another great episode for you all in which we'll cover some foregut emergencies. We'll work through some clinical scenarios that are within the scope of those taking general surgery call, but occur with a low enough frequency in most practices that they tend to create some surgeon anxiety, acute gastric volvulus, and duodenal perforation. For those that are interested in other foregut emergencies, Drs. Bingham and McClellan did an awesome two-part series on the management of emergencies following bariatric surgery back in October 2021 that I encourage you all to check out if you haven't already. As usual, we have no conflicts of interest to disclose, but some of the articles and videos in our show notes come from our institution, and Dr. Wright is a co-author on one of them. All right, enough with the preamble. Dr. Citrullo, do you want to start things off with our first case? We're going to start with the discussion of a 60-year-old man with a history of GERD and no prior surgical history who we from the emergency general surgery department have been called to evaluate overnight in the emergency department at 1 a.m. for nausea, vomiting, increasing PO intolerance over the past two days. Labs have been sent and are pending, and of course an abdominal CT scan has already been performed with the read gastric volvulus with over 180 degrees organoaxial rotation, an associated parasophageal hernia with no further description given, severe dilatation of the intrathoracic stomach, and no evidence of gastric ischemia or necrosis. The patient's currently tachycardic into the 120s with no other derangement of the vital signs. His exam is only notable for moderate epigastric pain without any evidence of rebound, guarding, or other signs of peritonitis. Dr. White, what would you do from here? As in this case, in the age of modern cross-sectional imaging, gastric volvulus isn't usually a diagnostic dilemma, but for the sake of the teaching point, acute gastric volvulus with gastric outlet obstruction is defined as rotation of greater than 180 degrees around either a line running from the G-junction to the pylorus, and that is called organoaxial volvulus, or a line connecting the midpoint of the lesser curve to the greater curve, and that is called a mesenteroaxial volvulus. Gastric volvuli are generally associated with a parasophageal hernia or anatomic abnormalities like asplenia, which is super rare, um, but can call, can occur due to simple laxity of the gastric ligaments or the phretoesophageal ligaments, which is called a primary gastric volvulus. It's really important to have the initial management steps down cold to avoid preventable morbidity to these patients. In this case, the critical next step is immediate gastric decompression with a large bore nasogastric tube. Personally, I prefer an 18 French NG tube if possible, at least a 16 French, not the normal pediatric tube seen in the ED. These patients are usually hypovolemic from vomiting and PO intolerance and often require substantial fluid resuscitation and electrolyte correction. So making sure you have adequate IV access 
and that the patient is in an environment where their progress can be closely monitored. This is essential as it can become difficult to parse out whether a patient's hemodynamic derangements are related to hypovolemia alone or if there is the start of sepsis due to gastric ischemia when you're first meeting someone. Thanks, Dr. White. Since this is a surgery podcast and we're talking about surgical pathology, most of our listeners will have a pretty good sense that this case is eventually heading towards the operating room. But the question is, with what urgency? Let's say the patient's labs come back and demonstrate a mild leukocytosis to 14,000, a lactate of 5, and a creatinine that's elevated from the patient's baseline at 1.4. The ED is working on an NG tube, but haven't been successful so far. Like a lot of things in surgery, the decision about whether or not to go to the operating room really depends on a handful of things. Uh, but from the information that you've given us, we don't necessarily have to rush emergently to the operating room quite yet, especially if it's you know 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, really, the things I'm going to look at are whether you're able to achieve uh, gastric decompression. These are often challenging NG tubes to place, and oftentimes the ED sort of gives up. So having the, the surgery team come in to place the NG tube is often necessary. Um, you want to look at whether they're responding to resuscitation. So um, if a patient comes in tachycardic, but they respond pretty quickly to IV fluids, that can be a very uh, helpful sign that maybe it's not quite uh, as much of an emergency as you might think. I do think it's important, though, to remember that an abdominal exam isn't super reliable in these patients. Um, the stomach is actually up in the chest, and uh, it's essentially a closed-loop obstruction when it happens. So they often don't have a lot of abdominal pain or distension. Uh, I think you do um, need to make sure you have good uh, evaluation capabilities. So oftentimes these patients will end up in the ICU or, or a high-level, high-acuity bed, uh, and they do need to be watched overnight. You can't just park them and come back eight hours later. You have to check on them uh, serially overnight. Uh, the patients that I think need a more urgent um, intervention are if they don't respond to an NG and resuscitation. And those are the folks that you really need to think about uh, going to the operating room for at least a diagnostic laparoscopy. And then depending on the findings at the time of laparoscopy, uh, we can talk a little bit later about our different surgical options. Perfect. Uh, I remember a case similar to this one when I was our night float intern and remember struggling to understand the virtue of waiting. Dr. Trullo, what are the benefits of temporizing with decompression and resuscitation if this patient is eventually heading to the OR anyway? Aside from the patients who lack hemodynamic stability and need to go to the operating room to rule out gastric necrosis and ischemia, I think waiting is the optimal approach for these patients if possible. One of the most important factors in making this decision is postoperative mortality. And one of the papers that's uh, being used in this discussion and cited from some of our colleagues here at University of Washington showed a greater than, or excuse me, a 10 times greater mortality in patients uh, undergoing emergent surgery for gastric volubilis and potentially necrosis versus those who are waiting for a semi-elective uh, procedure to be done with a more formal repair. Most of our uh, emergency general surgery colleagues are capable of doing nice formal uh, parasophageal hernia repairs but if a patient can wait till the morning and a surgeon who has expertise in that is available to do the procedure, there could be the potential benefit of avoiding a second surgery if a gastropexy eventually fails. And additionally, NG tube compression can often get these patients quite better uh, quickly where they may not even need surgery during this hospital stay. NG tube decompression can return patients to their baseline and get them through this acute episode 
uh, that can then get them to abridged formal repairs and outpatients, which has its own benefits, which is a little bit beyond the scope of this discussion. But I do think as much as possible, waiting in a stable, hemodynamically stable patient should be the optimal approach. Got it. So let's say for this patient that they receive two liters of crystalloid with improvement in their heart rate and the emergency medicine staff are starting to correct their electrolyte derangements, but they're having a hard time placing an NG tube like Dr. Wright predicted that they might. Dr. White, what would you do now? This is a point worth repeating. Acute gastric volvulus with gastric outlet obstruction like this is a surgical emergency. And that even though this patient seems to be getting better with resuscitation, immediate decompression is required to reduce the risk of gastric ischemia and potential for tissue loss or perforation. In this situation, if we can't get an NG tube placed at bedside or by interventional radiology, urgent endoscopic assisted NG tube placement by either the surgical team, if they're facile with endoscopy, or with our GI colleagues would be my next step. If we're performing endoscopy prior to nasogastric tube decompression, I would also loop in anesthesia to secure the patient's airway with an ET tube for endoscopy, as the combination of sedation and a distended stomach with gastric instrumentation is a recipe for aspiration. I totally agree, and in fact, I've had a patient aspirate uh, during an attempted endoscopy and and absolutely agree about airway protection. Um, Since you need general anesthesia anyway, in this situation, instead of uh, general anesthesia for an endoscopically placed NG tube, often I would at that point just take them to the operating room for diagnostic laparoscopy since they're getting general anesthesia anyway. Perfect. Uh, Let's change up the scenario a little bit. Let's say that we have the same patient but instead this time we were able to place the NG tube in the emergency department and got back two liters of dark gastric contents. Dr. Citrullo, what's the rule for endoscopy in this patient who's now decompressed? In general, post-decompression endoscopy has limited value in a stable or improving patient. So I think determining whether your patient is stable or not, if they're following what you would think is your expected course after decompression and resolution of their gastric outlet obstruction, If any of these things are not happening, that's when endoscopy could potentially be a viable option to assess viability of the stomach. What I would be concerned about is, do you already have the information and is the endoscopy giving you anything super meaningful at that point that shouldn't be obtained either at the same time in the operating room by the surgical team doing the endoscopy at the same time as prepping to do their laparoscopy for potential gastric resection? So I'm not sure that there's a great role for a lone endoscopy in this setting other than potentially diagnosing a problem you could probably diagnose without endoscopy. Okay, so let's say that this patient's in the ICU and not recovering quite as quickly as we'd like. So we do decide to call gastroenterology, and the cross-covering resident who we've asked uh, to consult for an EGD says that this patient's CT scan in the emergency department was specifically read as, quote, no radiographic evidence of ischemia or necrosis, and they say that, therefore, the upper endoscopy is not needed. Dr. Wright, how reassured are you by that CT read? So I think CT is pretty sensitive for the diagnosis of gastric volvulus, but not particularly sensitive for gastric ischemia or, in fact, even for perforation. So a lot of people would recommend an EGD in that setting to look for ischemia, and then they would then um, choose their treatment course based on whether or not there's ischemia present. 
Um, in my experience, however, uh, if you can get them uh, improving on resuscitation, I will get a plain film. And if you see decompression of the gastric bubble, I think it's pretty safe to admit for close observation. And then you could talk about whether or not to get an upper GI in the morning. Um, from my standpoint, though, if it's improving, you really don't need an EGD. And if they're unstable or not improving, I just take them straight to the operating room. Great. Now, since that case got us through the workup and initial management for gastric volvulus, but there are a handful of different surgical options we can choose from that depend pretty heavily on a patient presentation, I'm going to run through some different situations that contain either a complete or nearly complete workup and ask each of you to walk our listeners through your rationale for uh, choosing a treatment strategy and briefly how you go about doing it. Dr. White, let's start with you. Let's say you have an 89-year-old male who has COPD requiring home oxygen, associated pulmonary hypertension, and congestive heart failure with an ejection fraction of 12% with a CT-demonstrated acute gastric volvulus. He's tachycardic with systolic blood pressure in the low 90s, and his labs are remarkable for an elevated lactate and AKI. The ED was able to get an NG tube placed and put out almost three liters, uh, and they consulted you and gastroenterology to help manage the patient. Of course you give me the hard one. So this is obviously a very different patient. And while this pathology generally warrants an operation, this gentleman is unlikely to tolerate prolonged anesthesia or insufflation. Because of this, it's important to properly counsel the patient and their family about the gravity of this situation in a frail, comorbid, elderly patient like this, and understand their goals of care to incorporate into your decision-making. For a patient like this, I'd make every effort to pick an approach that minimizes exposure to anesthesia and would recommend an entirely endoscopic treatment strategy with the understanding that if we found evidence of irreversible ischemia, we'd have a discussion about a high-risk operation. Thanks, Dr. White. And that totally endoscopic treatment strategy you mentioned is, of course, placement of a double peg tube. Uh, the principles of a double peg are performance of a normal EGD in which uh, you would enter the stomach, evaluate the gastric mucosa for ischemia, and reduce the volvulus, which usually occurs with simple gastric insufflation. Uh, and then you would place uh, two peg tubes with standard technique uh, along the greater curvature of the stomach in the body and the antrum. The key here is keeping them about 12 centimeters apart so you do not create a fulcrum around which the stomach could revolvulize. Uh, it's a nice technique to have in your back pocket for these comorbid patients uh, who can't tolerate prolonged anesthesia. Dr. Centrillo, let's try another one. Let's say you're taking EGS call and get a call from the transfer center from a surgeon at a small hospital who's managing a patient with CT-proven acute gastric volvulus in their emergency department. They tell you that the patient is a 65-year-old woman with two days of nausea and vomiting with associated epigastric pain. She was initial, uh, initially tachycardic and complaining of severe epigastric pain uh, both of which have improved with uh, NG placement and fluid resuscitation. Their primary practice is colorectal, and while adept lapar uh, laparoscopically, uh, they have minimal recent foregut experience, and they'd like to know your opinion on next steps. These are pretty common problems since at a lot of institutions, call is handled by people with different levels of expertise. I know at our institution, at one of the campuses, the person on call could be a patibiliary surgeon, a foregut surgeon, a colorectal surgeon, and it depends on who's available or who is working that night. At our other site, it's mostly staffed by general surgeons who have variable, variable experience in foregut procedures. So in general, 
Assessing patient stability before making any decisions about transfer is first and foremost the most important thing. As long as stability is not the issue, you can at least consider transfer to a center with foregut experience for a formal uh, parasophageal hernia repair, or at least the service or site that has more experience handling foregut surgery. The questions, though, you have to decide are, are you going to have endoscopy done before transfer to make sure there isn't gastric ischemia or necrosis? Or is there going to be a good way to secure a nasogastric tube? And are you going to do that at our institution before transferring, knowing that if there's ischemia, you could make a perforation, which would lead to a more rapid trip to the operating room? Are there any studies that are pending that you should obtain while you're working this up and planning to transfer? And where, what's the location, distance, and site? And have you spoken to the accepting transfer site? So let's say in this case, the surgeon talks to their patient and they're not interested in taking the four and a half hour drive to Seattle to come see us. Uh, they were asking if you could give them some tips on the laparoscopic sutured gastropexy as a, an option for addressing their volvulus. So doing a laparoscopy with serial gastropexies uh, is a viable solution for these patients in the middle of the night can be done rapidly and can be done in conjunction with EGD if needed to assess viability of the gastric mucosa. As described by our partner and friend, Dr. Rob Yates, and with many mentors here, including Dr. Wright, a diagnostic laparoscopy is performed with port placement can be variable. We tend to place ports in relatively standard position with a liver retractor in the subxiphoid position, uh, ports in the left and right upper quadrant, and then right side of the abdomen just above the umbilicus. You're then going to do uh, two options for how you're gonna do this repair. What is described in the paper by Dr. Yates is doing essentially serial placement of sutures along the greater curvature of the stomach to the peritoneum at the abdominal wall, moving approximately a few centimeters along with each position and grabbing the wall with a good bite using either a endo stitch or freehand suturing. Other options include placing less frequent sutures, but in the paper that's going to be accompanied with this podcast, uh, it's proven that using this number of sutures has significant benefit for the patients in potentially avoiding the need for long-term formal repair and a more durable, at least temporizing option to get patients out of the hospital in a safer fashion. So I think in the show notes, we're going to have a link to a video by uh, Dr. Yates actually showing how he performs this laparoscopic gastropexy. Um, This suture gastropexy typically takes me about uh, 30 minutes to do, and you can do it under actually low insufflation pressure. So I'll routinely do this with an insufflation pressure of about eight. Um, So you can do it fairly quickly, even in fairly sick patients. And we've had a, a, a very low rate of complications with suture gastropexy. And in fact, we moved to suture gastropexy because it had a lower complication rate than doing a double peg reduction. Uh, so for that reason, uh, even in patients like the one you presented earlier to Dr. White, uh, we're typically doing a suture gastropexy instead of uh, the double peg uh, approach. Thanks, Dr. Wright. Before we move on to the next patient, what would you say to the suggestion that this patient improves with decompression, that they could be PO challenged and sent to a foregut surgeon's clinic as an outpatient? Dr. Sutrua, what do you think about managing this person as an outpatient? In this particular patient with severe symptoms who is unlikely to really resolve long-term, I would definitely not discharge them from the ER with just this P1 PO challenge. I think a safer strategy, if you really wanted to avoid the operating room, would be to admit them to your service, 
do a formal challenge in the morning, get some type of imaging study to evaluate and make sure that you truly have reduced this stomach and that everything is in good position. If not, I think going to the OR and taking this, doing this suture gastropexy uh, is a much more, I would argue, conservative approach because you are doing something actively to resolve the situation instead of just hoping that the patient's own body will solve the problem. Yeah, I think the board answer, you know, quote unquote board answer is to do a, an operation the same admission. Um, I think in select patients, though, if they improve and their symptoms completely resolve after NDGD compression, um, I'll get a, an upper GI gastrographin series. And if the acute obstruction is resolved, then I'll let them eat and go home. And then I'll try to get them into the operating room within a week or two, especially in some of these older frail patients that gives you time to do some preoperative optimization and testing and, and increases the odds that you can do a formal uh, real PEH repair as opposed to a gastropexy. Okay, Dr. Wright, this next patient is for you. Uh, we're now being consulted for a 75-year-old man with a history of hypertension who is in the emergency department with approximately one week of vomiting and PO intolerance whose partner brought him to the hospital following a syncopal event. The patient was initially hypotensive and tachycardic, which improved with resuscitation and initiation of norepinephrine, but he remains febrile at 39 degrees. His CT demonstrated acute gastric volvulus associated with gastric outlet obstruction. It's also notable for intrathoracic gastric wall thickening and hypoattenuation of, uh, and some adjacent fluid in the posterior mediastinum. An NG tube was placed successfully, which puts out two liters of coffee brown colored output. His labs are notable for leukocytosis to 22,000, a lactate of 9, and a creatinine of 1.5. His exam is notable for some altered mental status, but he has no signs of peritonitis. Yeah, in some ways you gave me the easy one because this is a sick patient that just needs to go to the operating room. And again, we mentioned this before, but the reason they don't have peritonitis is because everything is contained in the chest. Um, you know, this is a patient who needs antibiotics and resuscitation. Uh, it, it's not somebody to mess around with an endoscopy or watching overnight. You just take into the operating room. Um, I would actually take these folks laparoscopically um, if you have laparoscopic skills, because I think that you can actually get a better visualization into the chest laparoscopically. Oftentimes open, it's a really hard spot to see well. Um, although if, if you need to convert to open, obviously that's acceptable. Uh, your first goal is to reduce the stomach. Um, once you reduce the stomach, then you can assess whether it's viable or actually perforated. Uh, sometimes you can, even with the perforation, you can do just a wedge resection of the non-viable stomach. It's pretty rare that the entire stomach is dead. Uh, every once in a while, it's so bad that you have to essentially uh, resect most of the stomach and do essentially an esophago uh, jejunostomy or a proximal gastrojejunostomy, uh, very akin to doing a gastric bypass. Uh, you know, if that's not in your skill set and uh, the patient's sick, you know, just like a damage control laparotomy, resect the dead tissue. Um, you could leave uh, an NG tube in the distal esophagus, leave big drains in the mediastinum and close them up uh, and then uh, ship them out to some place that can do a, a more formal reconstruction later. Perfect. Thanks, all. With that, let's move on to our next foregut emergency topic. I realize we have not spent much time going over the actual technique of a formal PEH repair. This was intentional in order to allow us to focus on the emergent workup and treatment options for EGS, since most who don't already do PEH repairs are unlikely to try one on call. But if you're interested, we do have an article in the show notes titled Managing Obstructive Gastric Volvulus, Challenges and Solutions by Dr. Rodriguez-Garcia that outlines much of what we've already covered, as well as the principles of a sound PEH repair. Dr. White, would you mind laying out our next patient scenario? Happy to. Next, we have a 45-year-old male whose medical history is notable 
only for chronic back pain, for which he takes ibuprofen on a regular basis. He's now presenting with severe abdominal pain for the last few hours. In the emergency department, he is tachycardic with diffuse, exquisite abdominal pain consistent with peritonitis. Also, he's very tender. Um, labs are pending, and upright abdominal x-ray is noted for pneumoperitoneum. Surgery is consulted to assist with further workup and management. Dr. Citrullo, want to get us started on this one? Of course. While the scenario is not so subtly pointing us towards a perforated ulcer, <clears throat> all we have to so far is nonspecific pneumoperitoneum and peritonitis. This is assuming the patient remains stable, which would allow us to get us some more information that might impact our surgical approach while we start this treatment. Assuring that the patient has good IV access and starting broad-spectrum IV antibiotics, including an IV PPI with antifungal plus or minus coverage. There's a lot more debate now about the benefit of potential antifungal coverage. I'm not sure if the answer currently exists, uh, which is the best approach. I would say starting antifungals now is still the recommended treatment, but there's potential for this to change in the future. Uh, definitely on your boards, you're going to want to start antifungal treatments. Ideally, you're going to get some type of contrast cross-sectional imaging, whether that's an upper GI series or a CT with contrast. You do not have to wait for the contrast to reach the rectum for it to be useful. So even having the patient swallow a little bit of contrast right before their CT could be beneficial. So Dr. White, let's say we got our CT scan, which demonstrates PO contrast um, extravasating from the anterior portion uh, of, or anterior part of the first portion of the duodenum. Your excellent resident has our patient in the operating room. Uh, can you walk us through how you address this patient who has a duodenal perforation? Absolutely. Assuming our excellent resident has the patient in low lithotomy, um, I would start out with a laparoscopic approach, at least a diagnostic laparoscopy. And if you're comfortable repairing it um, laparoscopically, it's preferable. Start out, wash out, irrigation. There's several articles suggesting 5 to 10 liters, although the nurses don't really like that that much because you get the three liter bags, but I think it's worthwhile. Identify and assess the site of perforation. Do an intraoperative endoscopy, which can help you find it, although this is anterior, so we should be able to find this quite easily. If there's no obvious mass, then there's no need to biopsy it. Now, if it's a gastric perforation, you must biopsy it at the time. So say it's about less than two centimeters, then I would do an omental patch. And there are a couple of different ways to do this. You can do a pedicalized omentum patch, a free omentum patch. Um, you can close the duodenum if the edges aren't too friable and then buttress it with omentum. Um, but if the patient has absolutely no omentum, you can use a falciform patch or a junal serosal patch. I typically will thread the NG tube down past the um, ulcer, and I would avoid narrowing the duodenum, avoid sewing in your NG tube too. Um, if none of this works, you can do a resection. Okay, so if it's larger, like greater than two centimeters, um, resection, and, and I wouldn't just go strictly on two centimeter mark. You have to assess your tension, basically. It's all about tension and good viability of tissue. But if you did need to do a resection, you do pro proximal duodenal resection with an antrectomy and a GJ reconstruction, um, you could also do the jejunal serosal patch. Either option, 
leak test with the NG tube, I usually use some um, blue uh, dye to test it, um, and then also endoscopic insufflation. Now, if you're concerned about ampullary involvement, then you would do a cholecystectomy and then leave a catheter along the, through the cystic duct. Worst case scenario, patients may need a Whipple and you may have to either drain the patient, transfer them to a tertiary care center, or call in your HPB colleagues. Remember, sometimes you leave a drain, sometimes not, depending on how much um, peritonitis there is, and leave your nasogastric tube. Dr. Wave, what about a definitive acid-reducing procedure at the same time, like a bigotomy or a highly selective bigotomy? Um, so in the age of PPIs, this is almost never necessary. The only really needs um, to be considered in the case of ulcer pro progression to perforation despite adequate treatment but then other things need to be considered at that time, like ZE syndrome. Um, because PPIs are so effective, there also aren't many surgeons left with experience doing them. So thankfully, most of these patients won't require a vagotomy. Um, one thing I do want to say, though, is if you have a frail patient, consider leaving a feeding tube, a feeding jejunostomy tube. Perfect. So Dr. White does her mental patch repair and then signs the service out to you, Dr. Citrullo. How should we manage this patient post-op? I think if you ask the hundred surgeons this question, they'd have a hundred different opinions about how they were going to do it. I think continuing the antibiotics for the stop at trial should be done at around day four. Uh, I think that includes the antifungals at that point. I personally believe testing for H. pylori should be done. I think if you have the capability of testing, you should test for it. So I would test and treat for H. pylori. Use your hospital nomogram to determine antibiotic resistance. After that, discussion about removing your NG tube, depending on when you get an upper GI or if you get an upper GI, depend, again, depending on personal preference. Anywhere from day one to three for an upper GI study, I think, is appropriate if you ask the right person, and clearly removal of the NG tube if the upper GI is clean is totally fine. Uh, drain management, again, depends on what's coming out of the drain, how much is coming out of the drain. I think if a patient's eating is stable and there's no minimal drain output, I think it's fine to remove. Uh, in terms of uh, continuing or stopping PPIs, I don't think that's a decision to make at the time of discharge. I could definitely continue their PPI, uh, and that can be figured out as an outpatient. Thanks, Dr. Citrullo. Since things have been going too smoothly so far today, uh, let's say our post-op GI on day three shows a leak. Uh, Dr. Wright, would you mind walking us through how you think about a patient with a leak after a mental patch repair? Let's say they're otherwise doing well with no signs of sepsis or peritonitis. Yeah, I've actually seen this more than once, uh, both my patients and, and colleagues' patients. And I think it's pretty common because the tissue is so friable that even within a mental patch, it's, it's no guarantee um, and it's really why you leave that drain uh, across your repair. I think the big question is whether this is a contained uh, and managed leak. So is it all being collected by the drain or if it's not con contained? Uh, a contained leak often you can treat non-operatively. Um, many cases these are folks that you can um, actually do some involving endoscopic options. And depending on whether they're in your skill set or, or your GI team at your hospital, uh, I think this is a great place for negative pressure therapy, essentially an endoluminal vac. Uh, you can also talk about over-the-scope clips or stents. 
Um, I'm not a big fan of actually clips in this setting because the tissue is so friable that I think that the clips actually don't hold, but I think it is a good place for a stent or the negative pressure therapy. Um, if it's uncontrolled, um, this is a patient that I would actually take back for a repeat laparoscopy, and I would actually try to control it with drains. I think trying to uh, re-repair would actually potentially make the situation worse. So I would just try to get adequate drainage and then uh, give it time to heal. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. I think that's all we're going to have time for for this episode. Uh, Dr. Swain Citrulo, would you mind closing things out for us with some take-home points? Absolutely. For gastric volvulus, decompression, resuscitation, plus or minus endoscopic evaluation of the gastric mucosa are critical. And from there, you can decide if the patient is a candidate for parasophageal hernia repair or if they'll need some variety of gastropexy or resection. If you can successfully temporize and resuscitate a patient with acute gastric volvulus to a semi-elective parasophageal hernia repair, Mortality rates are lower than with an emergency operation. For duodenal perforations, most or one of the most important features is to not forget your H. pylori treatment and testing. There's many, many ways to skin this cat, so do your preferred um, surgical approach, whichever you feel the most comfortable with, whether that's a pedicle to mental flap or a free flap. Whatever you feel the most comfortable with, I think, is the best approach for these types of patients. The data to guide decision-making is limited. It's critical to, to consider defect size, patient stability, and where the ampulla is in the setting of your repair. And leaks afterwards are highly complex and morbid uh, conditions. Antibiotics, drainage, and gastric decompression are among the mainstays of treatment. But with uh, endoluminal negative pressure vacs and things like that, there are more treatment options coming down the road. That's all we have for you this time. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.